Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this, the goodbye and hello edition, Jay kisses goodbye to the Red Sox season and says hello to the Patriots' title defense. Tom enjoys the Astros having one of the best records in baseball, and together they are back to discuss some of this week's top compliance and ethics stories which caught their collective eyes. So should compliance lead the data privacy charge is a question that we explore. How about the right to be forgotten as impacting on monitoring and compliance programs? What are the government's implications of the Equifax and Facebook settlements? How improved processes can drive CCPA, that's the California Data Privacy Law, compliance. What's the designing of the Tesla of compliance? We explore that issue. What about compliance and assurance? What's the intersection of dealers and the FCPA? What's the importance of PR in the anti-corruption fight? And what's the international map look like for whistleblowers? All wrapped around Jay Rosen's five-part podcast series on everything you've always wanted to know about monitors but was afraid to ask and a complimentary pass to Converge 18. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox the compliance evangelist back again with Mr. Monitors himself, just having almost wrapped up a one week podcast series on everything you wanted to know about monitors, but were afraid to ask it will wrap up shortly after the recording of this podcast for this week in FCPA episode 167 for the week ending August 16th, 2019, the goodbye and hello edition. If uh, you weren't aware, uh, Jay Rosen actually gave the Boston Red Sox the kiss of death when, uh, I think it was in June, he announced that uh, when the Red Sox hit 500, the boys were back. Well, it turns out the boys are not back, and they're not going anywhere this year, at least those boys. But there's another set of boys that uh, Jay follows, and those are the New England Patriots, and they are uh, getting ready for their title defense. So... um, Jay is uh, going to celebrate, probably, uh, the second half of um, Boston's world champions last year with the uh, Patriots firing up here in a couple of weeks. So um, the Astros still chugging along with the third best record in baseball behind the Los Angeles Dodgers and uh, the New York Yankees. So uh, we're still doing well, although we've lost two in a row. So, you know, maybe we're hitting our September slide, our pre-September slide. So, uh, but there are lots of compliance stories, Jay. Uh, anything in particular uh, you caught your eye this week? 
Well, let's uh, jump right in. And the first story I'd like to, we'd like to start with comes from the uh, Navix Global Ethics and Compliance blog. And it's about privacy design, why compliance should lead data privacy. And this comes to us from Jessica Wilburn. And uh, what Jessica is talking about is uh, basically the concept of privacy by design. And there are certain elements that are involved in that. Uh, first of all, like many ethics and compliance issues, it all starts with the people. And if you don't have the proper tone at the top, it doesn't really flow through to the uh, people below who are actually affected by the day-to-day policies. Next, we need to look about giving the process some structure. Embedding privacy by design and an ethical approach to data will involve different processes and nuances from all across the organization. First off, we need to look at both legacy data and future data and how that will be learned, uh, be used. Uh, next, we take a look at the key collaborators to make sure that they're not too siloed off and they're sharing their data. And then at the end, number three, we come to technology, but that's really only an enabler. The final consideration, uh, it carries a caveat that it's easy to presume that, excuse me for a sec, that smart systems can somehow liberate compliance professionals from the burden of regulation. If you look at most data breaches that we see, they usually come down to human error. So the human element is also very important. Uh, We link to Jessica's notes, uh, rather Jessica's article in the show notes. And next up, uh, Tom's going to talk to us about the right to be forgotten. So, Jay, the European Union just passed, uh, or rather in April, passed a proposal which was adopted by the European Parliament for new whistleblower protection. It has five general areas defining the areas of law eligible for whistleblowing, framing the profile of the whistleblower qualifying under the new rules, setting out the type of information available for whistleblowing, delineating the reporting channels, and uh, the protections. Uh, This article came to us, I should have said, from the uh, New York University Compliance and Enforcement blog by Dr. Uh, Katja Langenbucher. So the uh, European member states, uh, it goes to their commission for member states, approval, and it has two years for um, implementation within the European member state. It's a pretty broad definition of a whistleblower, uh, anyone in the private and public sector. It is um, broad enough to cover information uh, that uh, there must be a good faith belief that it's true that uh, the uh, information provides breaches of law or imminent breaches of law. There's a specific reporting channel laid out. The, of course, uh, anti-retaliatory protection is put in place. And then uh, I think the thing that uh, I really want to emphasize, Jay, is the broad scope of whistleblowers uh, who can qualify under this law. The um, lawyers, compliance officers, uh, private or legal persons, um, facilitators, really anyone uh, can be involved in this. So it's a pretty broad protection for uh, whistleblowers and something that I think uh, is a long time coming to uh, the European Union. It's going to probably lead to a lot more uh, cases coming forward. Jay, next up, um, 
was a great article. I don't know if you know Mike Peregrine or not, but he practices at Will McDermott or McDermott, Will and Emory in Chicago. And he t- uh, uh, often writes on corporate governance matters. And he's got another great article in the Harvard Law School Forum on corporate governance and financial regulations, where he takes a look at the Equifax and Facebook settlements, but he takes a look at it from the corporate governance perspective. And they both provide some uh, very interesting uh, details. I think the Facebook settlement has been a little bit more well-discussed in terms of uh, setting a board-level privacy committee and uh, desire to have greater accountability for uh, privacy at the board level. But the Aquifax settlement actually um, uh, also had some interesting uh, developments or at least interesting components. The company is required to implement a comprehensive information privacy security program they have to have a person designated to oversee the program. They have to conduct internal assess, annual assessments on internal and external uh, security. They have to receive annual certifications from the Equifax board and relevant subcommittees, attesting that the company has complied with the order they agreed to with the uh, Federal Trade Commission. They've got to uh, test and monitor the effectiveness of this system. And then they have to uh, ensure service providers uh, also implement adequate safeguards. So uh, I thought both of these were interesting from the requirements put up on the board. Uh, we don't know if the uh, Department of Justice may move this direction under uh, FCPA enforcement, but it certainly would be something that I think the Department of Justice would look at uh, going forward. So uh, so uh, going for three in a row on data privacy, Uh, Tom's going to tell us uh, what Stephen O'Donnell is thinking about in Corporate Compliance Insights when he takes a look at how improved processes can drive CCPA compliance. Right. So a really uh, interesting article from Miratech, Stephen O'Donnell, about how um, CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Protection Act, differs from GDPR. And he outlined some of the uh, direct steps you take, you should take. Uh, but a couple of things really struck me, uh, Jay, that I really wanted to emphasize. Um, he has a couple of uh, pithy quotes, but I think really speak to the issue. Uh, he quoted one CIO, chief information officer, uh, who said, I would have gotten ahead of the problem because the only easy day was yesterday. Uh, I know that quote was... Uh, um, using the Marine Corps a lot, a long time, but uh, it, it really uh, speaks to the fact that you need to be ahead of this uh, now. You need to determine whether or not you are compliant with the initiative now, and then you need to install um, processes to get ahead of this. Uh, GDPR uh, certainly has been around now since May of uh, 2018, but uh, this act is a little bit different uh, because it focuses um, a little bit more on consumers, and uh, whereas GDPR, you can a- a- exempt yourself from uh, having any, any data collected. Here, you have to exempt out uh, from uh, uh, CCPA, uh, or excuse me, from the requirements uh, allowing data to be stored. So a little bit different uh, process going forward, and and I really like the way 
uh, Stephen said that you need to have a compliance uh, person overseeing this because typically uh, compliance really has uh, is the arbiter of a lot of uh, policies and procedures about doing the right thing, and he really thinks that a large part of this is whether or not companies are going to uh, be ethical in their data collection, data privacy uh, policy. So a really interesting article, and certainly I uh, think that uh, folks should uh, take a look at it. So, Jay, uh, how would you go about designing the Tesla of compliance? I think that's a great question, Tom. Another article that comes to us from Corporate Compliance Insights by Adam Schneider, and he asked the question, uh, designing the question of secure, uh, divine, designing the Tesla of security and compliance. And he goes back in this article and talks about when the automotive industry started about 120 years ago, that there were certain physical things that uh, needed to be done, uh, whether you're working on a, a conveyor belt or a product line, there was a certain ways that things were done and physical processes were optimized for efficiencies. Now he wants to take a look at almost uh, back creating what would be the uh, designed uh, security and compliance equivalent of a Tesla. So he says that there are four things that you need to do. The first thing you need to do is create your vision of how you want your security and compliance program to function. Using a number of processes and aligned methodologies, tools, and technologies, enterprises can create a well-oiled security compliance engine that runs efficiently and becomes more economical over time. Next up is building the design. To build this vision, you will need to develop your strategy to map security and compliance activities against your business and global risks, as well as your risk and compliance requirements. Next, you get to the heart of the matter and assemble the engine. You're now in a better position to begin building a structured program that conducts compliance audits and associated control tests are efficient as possible. And finally, you would be disrupting the security and compliance, the latest model. Completely overhauling how we approach and manage security and compliance may seem daunting, but being reactive and running from audit to audit with business as usual security has been like driving a gas guzzler. Done correctly, you can now create a, quote, future-proof, unquote, system that empowers you to quickly uh, embrace new requirements and new technologies. So this sounds a lot like some of the operationalizing that you talk about in different functions of ethics and compliance, and we link to it in the show notes. Uh, next up, Tom is going to bring us the first of two articles from the Global Anti-Corruption blog, and this is from Matthew Stevenson. That corruption is not mainly an insurance problem. So, Jay, um, if you don't read the Global Anti-Corruption blog, uh, you really should because it is, I think, unique in the compliance space in that, um, and I certainly count myself uh, as a blogger in the compliance space, and I know uh, you now do as well, Jay, but Professor Stevenson uh, occasionally goes on these uh, really interesting tangents uh, around philosophical questions on bribery and corruption. And today, uh, he, he does that, or at least in uh, this blog post that we've linked to. He takes a look at uh, some of the ongoing debates in the academic world about game theory and compliance. And the assurance game is a, 
type of game theory <clears throat> that is based upon Rousseau's parable of the stag hunt in which two hunters are chasing a stag when a hare runs by. If both hunters continue to pursue the stag, they'll catch it and they'll both be better off, i.e. half a stag is better than a whole hare. But if one chases after the hare, the hunter one will probably get something while one may not, i.e. the one who goes after the hare will probably get something while the um, one who goes after the stag uh, may not get the entire stag. Uh, he compares this to the uh, well-known prisoner's dilemma, and his uh, thesis is that the assurance problem or the stag hunt game theory is not relevant in compliance, basically because the uh, stag hunt uh, game theory uh, is based on the fact that everyone will engage in the uh, uh, appropriate ethical behavior. So, and in under or in the compliance world, you typically will have people who may leave the stag hunt to go after the hare because they see the hare as actually much more uh, or much better business opportunity. So, it's a bit philosophical, it's a bit theoretical, but it's fun to delve into these things from time to time, Jay, and really see where academia. Uh, is taking some of these arguments because uh, you may not think it has a lot of application to the real world, but the bottom line is if this is what academics are thinking in terms of uh, either uh, underlying uh, theory or uh, really the a philosophical way to think about a problem, then the research is going to follow along this path, and the research may lead us to information or data that we would incorporate uh, more directly into a compliance solution. So uh, interesting theory, interesting article. Um, once again, more theoretical and more philosophical than we typically see. But uh, as is typical from Professor Stevenson, highly enlightening. So talking about something else that may be highly enlightening, uh, we've got uh, an article entitled Dealers, Drugs, and FCPA Insight. Coming to us from the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, on his Radical Compliance blog. And uh, he got a question from a chief compliance officer who wanted to know what type of third party falls under the, quote, dealer, unquote, for an FCPA purpose. Matt tried to think about this, and they came up with tasks that maybe a distributor would be having or a dealer, and Matt couldn't really figure out what exactly uh, worked out. So he posted on uh, LinkedIn, and it says, uh, Compliance officer, what's the difference between a dealer and distributor in the FCPA context? And Matt, being silly, said, I'm not sure. Try asking a drug dealer. And the CCO said, I already asked mine. He didn't know either. Uh, the answer actually came back from Scott Killingsworth, who's our uh, esteemed colleague. And uh, Scott remarked that, I think in common business uses, dealers are usually retailers and distributors sell to either dealers or other distributors. So if distributors only sell to other businesses, they typically have no direct contact with foreign government officials. 
a dealer selling to end-user customers would have the direct contact. So dealers and distributors have different risk profiles, which means your compliance program may need to apply different levels of due diligence and monitoring process. So uh, this was uh, a very light article, and uh, Matt concludes, and he says, uh, anyway, uh, thanks for the quip about weed dealers. We have our answers now, but maybe next time Matt just might drop some LSD and see if the answers come to him while tripping. So uh, a whimsical but uh, fun little diversion from uh, Matt this week on Radical Compliance. Tom is up next with the second article from this week's Global Anti-Corruption blog, the importance of public relations in the fight against corruption. Right. So this is an article by Jason Cohn, and Jason really emphasizes that PR is a critical tool in the fight against uh, corruption. He details three reasons this he believes this is so. Number one, uh, public relations helps change culture. This is particularly important with regard to petty corruption, which is often too small scale and widespread for effective investigation and prosecution uh, by enforcements. But uh, another example could be the Say No to Corruption campaigns that uh, are going forward. Second, PR facilitates the reporting of corruption. Corruption investigations are notoriously difficult to prosecute without tips from victims and whistleblowers. Certainly, uh, our earlier article on uh, whistleblowing in the EU ties directly into this point, Jay. But uh, PR encourages witnesses to inform authorities by ensuring they may have accurate information about uh, uh, how to report and what to report. And third, PR helps to increase popular support for government anti-corruption efforts. Uh, He believes the function of PR has two distinct aspects. The first is to increase knowledge among a population of a government's anti-corruption aspects, but it also can be used to generate public support for enforcement efforts uh, as well. Finally, is uh, it generates political support for new anti-corruption measures, which must often be passed over stiff resistance of uh, entrenched business interests or others who don't want to uh, help the fight against uh, bribery and corruption. So um, a really interesting uh, look, look at PR or, or uh, the PR industry from the compliance angle, I'm always fascinated with everyone's role, Jay, in the fight against corruption. Certainly, um, the fourth estate, the press, has a role to identify corruption. Uh, compliance officers have roles. Uh, vendors and suppliers in the compliance space have roles. Commentators have roles. Um, but here, uh, he really articulates the need for PR and their role. And so I appreciated him bringing kind of these thoughts forward. So we finished up with the uh, article part of the podcast. Um, rather, what were we talking about this week, you and I, Tom, about the uh, fifth episode we dropped this morning? So I'm proud to announce that in the middle of this recording, uh, episode five has been released. So uh, by the time you listen to this podcast, it will be out. But we had just a fascinating five-part series this week based upon not only one of my favorite books as a 12-year-old, tee-hee-hee, uh, but also one of my favorite Woody Allen movies, Everything You've Always Wanted to Know About Monitors But Were Afraid to Ask. Uh, fortunately for all of us, uh, Woody did not have the inspiration that you had, Jay, and, and he uh, entitled his movie something a little bit different. Uh, but we looked at uh, introduction to the topic, 
uh, post-resolution monitorships, pre-settlement monitorships, considerations when hiring a monitor. And uh, we close today with some some of your thoughts on the cost around monitors. There's a uh, Jay had actually written a great uh, article series um, about this that was uh, posted in CCI and it's uh, has been posted over the last several weeks. So rather than me writing up a blog post, we've linked to each one of Jay's articles because I think that uh, really uh, set out uh, many of the concepts in more detail. So we've linked to Jay's articles in the show notes. Of course, we've got his thoughts on the podcast, uh, which have been extraordinarily well-received. Um, you can check it out on the FCPA Compliance Report, the Compliance Podcast Network, iTunes, JD Supra, Megaphone, YouTube, Spotify, uh, C-Suite Radio, Corporate Compliance Insights, iHeartRadio, uh, iTunes, uh, MeTunes, and a, a plethora of other platforms that I post on now, Jay. So uh, in early October, we're going to be uh, getting together with some of the Ethics and Compliance tribe at Converge 19 in Denver. Tom, why don't you tell our listeners about a special offer you have for them? Right. So uh, I've uh, come to a uh, agreement with uh, Conversant, and they are uh, giving a complimentary pass to people uh, who listen to this podcast who want to attend Converge. And this is going to be truly one of the, the top events uh, in the compliance calendar each year. Last year was just outstanding, and they're only going to build on uh, what they created last year. It's a real sense of community, Jay. Uh, it's it like I like the phrase you used, our tribe, because that's exactly what it is. And it is a high-level presentation. This is not a, a sales presentation by Conversant. This is literally some of the top compliance practitioners in the country. We've got people like Kurt Drake, uh, uh, CCO at Kimberly Clark, Andrew Wallace, a CEO at Unseen. We have Jose Raul Gonzalez, the um, CCO at Cementos. Uh, we've got uh, on a keynote speech, which I'm really to he- interesting to hear about. Ali Raisman is going to talk about. She's an Olympic gold medalist, and she's going to talk about Me Too. Uh, it's a, a two day event. Um, I hope that uh, you would consider going. And frankly, with this uh, promotional code that you can get a complimentary um, pass to the event, you, it's something that you can't really uh, afford to pass up. Uh, in addition to the information that's on the um, website, and we've linked to that in the show notes, uh, there's going to be a great opportunity for both uh, industry get-togethers, geography get-togethers, uh, business sector get-togethers, and what Conversant is going to do is provide you with an opportunity to not only discuss best practices in, in the specific area that you were in and the specific types of businesses you practice compliance, but also um, we're going to have roundtables set up for each one of those that people can ask questions and, and really take a deep dive. We're going to facilitate discussions. Um, and then, of course, I have to mention, Jay, that this is – what I'm most excited about is we're going to have our first live recording of uh, the current gang of Everything Compliance. So if you've ever wanted to see a live podcast, we're taking Everything Compliance on the road. We're going to be in Denver uh, for Converge 19, and I really hope that uh, you can join us. Sounds like it's going to be uh, interesting and a lot of fun to uh, renew acquaintances with people and, and make new connections. Um, so I think we have covered it. 
So for Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 167, for the week ending August 16th, 2019. The Goodbye Red Sox and Hello Patriots edition brought to you by those never taking the foot off the gas pedal Houston Astros. Thanks for joining us and have a great weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again, and I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions on this episode, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I hope you will join Jay and I next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories which caught our eye. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.